When I was 26, I found myself in the backseat of an old Cadillac. It had been refurbished as an airport taxi. I was on the island of Nassau in the Bahamas. It was one of the first times I'd ever flown and certainly the first time to a warmer climb. I remember looking out the window and seeing palm trees. They lined the road like soldiers. And to this day, these trees and the leaves that look like giant fans are among the favorite things that mother nature grows. But I wondered myself, how did I get there? Did I belong? And you know, in many ways, I deserve to have imposter syndrome. I was a co-founder of an event agency called Communique. I was off to produce a sales conference in the Caribbean. But just three years earlier, I'd moved to Toronto with two suits, a duffel bag full of clothes, $600 in debt, and ambition. Communique's business was to help leaders of organizations animate their vision, enlighten their employees, make them believers. I learned that inspiration and motivation and celebration was as important as education. And I came up with an idea to repurpose creative so clients could rent an entire stage production, personalized with their people and their products and logos versus buy one. This not only saved them money, it gave them a much bigger bang for their creative buck. And we in turn could make profit on our production over an extended time. The idea took off and over the next decade, we grew to over hundred people. Back then, I didn't think of culture or diversity or gender equality or the future of work. Looking back, I think we nailed all of the above. Why? I was focused on hiring great people with passion and a great service mentality. But today, the dynamics of work are very different. For employees, there are fewer guarantees or security, but in turn, those that have ambition or the right skill set, there are fewer roadblocks. The concept of place has changed. We've gone through a period where we staged our work in our homes and we commuted our thoughts and output through the clouds. And employers are dealing with employees that have new demands. We want work-life balance. We want companies that have a higher purpose than profit. We want a level playing field and paying field, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or sexuality. As artists, we want to control and ownership of our creative product. And as innovators, we want to own our own IP. Employers need to focus on shared value, not just shareholder value, and realize that they need a culture that has to be nurtured and developed and seeded with diverse thinking, respect, honesty, and authenticity. And in the middle of all of this, rewriting the future of work, we're gonna be short-circuited by AI and machine learning and automation that's gonna populate every corner of the world. What will it take to march in step with this next level of change? To find a place to work where you can have passion and purpose and pursuit. The future of work, the future of your work is what matters and to help us find these answers, I reached out to Jacob Morgan. He's one of LinkedIn's top influencers. 300,000 people subscribed to his newsletter. He's a contributor to the conversation at leading conferences, in leading media, and through the books that he writes. What does he have in store for you this week on Chatter That Matters? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Jacob Morgan. You will learn shortly how a $10 bill from his boss and a request to fetch him coffee changed the trajectory of his life. But first, I'd be remiss if I didn't establish why his thoughts will be of immense value to you. Jacob Morgan is a professionally trained futurist and one of the world's leading authorities on leadership and the future of work. The world is changing quickly. What do you need to know and do in order to be successful now and in the future? Hi, my name is Jacob Morgan. I'm a four-time best-selling author, speaker, and futurist. And this show is all about you, helping you become more successful at work and in life. Jacob speaks to tens of thousands of people each year, including the TED Academy. Jacob is a best-selling author of four books, including his latest, The Future Leader. 
Jacob, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to start with one of the best paragraphs I've ever read by anybody when you talk about this $10 bill and a boss that changed your trajectory. So share with our audience what it was like back then and what happened and why did that really send you on a new path in life? This was, oh, I'd say around 15 years ago. Uh, to give people a little bit of context, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz. Prior to that, I was always a terrible student. Uh, my grade point average was 2.7, 2.8. My family comes from Russia, so I have Russian immigrant parents. And so you can imagine having a 2.7 did not go over very well with them. They're all about discipline, working hard. Uh, I was always taught to pay your dues, to do whatever you need to do uh, to get ahead and be successful. So that was the mentality that I had growing up. Finally, I get to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I realized that this is pretty much the last chance I have. If I screw up here and I don't get good grades, I'm not going to get a job anywhere. Everybody basically said, if you don't do well in college, you will not get a job and this will dictate and set you up on the path for the rest of your life. So I worked as hard as I freaking could in college. I graduated with honors. I double majored in economics and psychology. While a lot of my friends were out partying and having fun, I would spend nights in the, the Cowell library. And uh, finally, I graduated. And I thought, man, I worked so hard. I am ready for the corporate world. And I thought at that point, I would be unstoppable, invincible. I'm going to make a huge impact. Like I could do anything now because I got these great grades. So my first job out of college is in Southern California. So I moved back home and interviewed a lot of different organizations and ended up taking a, this job with a company in downtown LA. Now, if anybody knows Los Angeles, the traffic is atrocious. And I ended up taking the job because I was promised that I would be doing amazing things, traveling the country, meeting with entrepreneurs, making a difference, changing the world, even willing to forego my hour and a half commute to work, an hour and a half commute back from work each day. So three hours a day driving, basically a part-time job sitting in a car. A couple months into my job, I am stuck doing cold calling, I am doing data entry, and I'm doing PowerPoint presentations. And in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, okay, pay your dues, pay your dues. This is what everybody told you you got to do. Climb the ladder. Like it sucks at the beginning. It'll get better. It didn't get better. And I was sitting there thinking, why the hell did I need to get good grades? I'm doing nothing related to economics. I'm doing nothing related to psychology. I'm, I didn't even need to go to college, even high school to be able to do what I was doing. And finally, one of the, uh, the top executives comes out of his beautiful corner office in downtown LA. He shouts, Jacob, I got this really important project for you. Get over here. And I thought, this is it. Paid my dues. My moment has come. This is going to be amazing. So I get over to this executive and he takes out his wallet. And he takes out a $10 bill from his wallet and he you know, slaps it in my hand. And he says, I am late for a meeting. I need you to go down to Starbucks and get me a cup of coffee. And by the way, get yourself a latte as well. And I just kind of looked at him just thinking like, seriously, <laughs> this, this is why I went to school is to get you a cup of coffee. Now, mind you, I wasn't even an admin. I wasn't hired as an admin. <laughs> what was I doing getting this executive coffee? And that, in my mind, was like, wow, this is what I'm in for for the rest of my life? This is what climbing the corporate ladder looks like? This is what the corporate America looks like? I, I want nothing to do with this. And so that was a pivotal moment during my journey to, to go off on my own. I, I maybe had one or two more jobs after that, but this, this coffee story was very pivotal 
in setting me up on my current path. And funny enough, the CEO of this company actually commented on my LinkedIn profile mm, three weeks ago. And uh, he left me this funny comment like, uh, oh, you know, so-and-so told me that, that you were getting coffee, but, you know, I never carried my wallet with me. Anyway, I hope you're doing well. It's <laughs> totally random. 15 years later, now a lot of the executives at that company are reading my LinkedIn newsletter and checking out my content because a lot of this started by the bad experience I had working there. So tell me a little bit about your, I read some incredibly emotional comments uh, that you're talking about how your family ended up in America and what your dad did to make sure that he paved his way for his family to have a fighting chance. Uh, you know, again, my parents were uh, immigrants. They actually came from the Republic of Georgia. You know, when I say Georgia, I don't mean like the, hey, y'all, I'm from the South kind of Georgia. This is more like the, hello, Mother Russia kind of Georgia, right? Very, very different part of the world here. And they were, they were persecuted for being Jews. It was a very hostile climate and environment. And so in the late 70s, they migrated from the Republic of Georgia. They weren't allowed to take anything with them. So they had to give up their citizenship. I think the maximum they were allowed to take was $100. Uh, they had to leave most of their possessions behind. And uh, they migrated from the Republic of Georgia to Italy. From Italy, my mom and dad actually met in Italy. They didn't know each other in Georgia. Uh, my mom's side of the family, they were selling tchotchkes on the streets in Italy to make money. They met there. They ended up migrating from Italy to Australia, which is where they were married, which is where I was born. And at that point, they had a decision to make, right? Where, where are we going to settle down? We need to build a life for ourselves. They tried to do it in Australia, but you know, at the time, America was marketed as the land of golden opportunity. This is where the American dream is. And my dad was all about the American dream. He was obsessed with, uh, with America, you know, the things that he saw. And his mentality is we, we have to go to America. That's, that's where our home is going to be. What he did is he ended up coming to America himself. He left uh, me and my mom and my mom's family, uh, my grandparents in Australia. And he came to America on his own to try to build a life here. He didn't speak any English, not a word. So he learned how to speak English by watching the Johnny Carson show and the Merv Griffin shows. And he had this Russian, uh, the English to Russian translation dictionary, which actually I still have. It's somewhere somewhere in my house and it's it's tattered it's yellow it's torn apart are you finished <laughs> may i have silence please especially from you yes <laughs> the answer to this question a seal in this envelope is but he would watch these shows with this dictionary and he would spend probably five six hours a day uh, staring at a mirror trying to mouth these words so that he could get them right and he also lived in you know a very poor neighborhood in uh in philadelphia I asked him, I said, how come you don't want to live around other Russian people? And he said, well, because I left Russia and I'm in America. I want to be around Americans. I want to assimilate into American culture and society. How am I going to do that if I stay in my comfort zone and live with other Russians? And so I was just very inspired by uh, my dad's story and how hard he had to push himself. And there were so many stories along the way of how he tried to get jobs and how he was turned down. But I think it was through just sheer will and perseverance and determination and just, you know, working like a, <laughs> like a dog, for lack of a better phrase, um, to be able to create a life for his family here. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. It was Plato who said, wise men speak because they have something to say, fools because they have to say something. We live in a connected world where everybody's trying to stand out and make their voice be heard. This can make it feel like you are just a drop in an ocean. 
In fact, most employees don't even speak up at work to let their voices, their ideas, and their opinions even get heard by others. So how can you possibly get noticed in this noisy and connected world that we are all a part of? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest, Jacob Morgan, 300,000 people subscribed to his LinkedIn newsletter, including me. Let's find out why. So Jacob, at an early age, they diagnosed you with ADHD. How did that come about? Well, I remember actually uh, <laughs> going and this, uh, man, how old was I? Six, seven? I mean, it was very, very young. I did IQ tests. I did all these things. And I, I had a pretty high IQ according to the IQ test anyway. Uh, but I had a very hard time focusing and I was constantly distracted. And I remember my teachers, I think, suggested to my parents, you know, you should, you should go talk to a psychologist. Maybe he's got something going on. And so I remember going into this psychologist's office and it was a big wooden desk and there was lots of toys everywhere and things going on and everybody walked out of the room. And I was just like tinkering and playing around with stuff and, and doing things. I don't remember actually how the diagnosis came about, but I just remember a couple of days later, the doctor put me on Ritalin. My parents didn't know any better and you know, Russian immigrants, they're like, okay, I guess we got to trust this American doctor. Uh, so I was on Ritalin for a little while until everybody, you know, my parents realized how terrible this was. I wasn't eating. It was an interesting experience to be diagnosed with ADHD, and it's true. I mean, even to this day, uh, I have a hard time focusing. But what I did find, at least for me, ADHD doesn't mean I can't focus. It just means there are a few things that I can focus on. And the things that I can focus on, I can spend hours doing. Uh, in my case, working is one of them. I can get a lot of stuff done. Uh, you know, before I got married, I would work till three, four in the morning. I, I, I get a lot of things done. I work really, really hard. So I, when I find something like that, I can spend hours doing it. Writing, building my business. Chess is another one because chess is a, you know, it's an infinite game. It's basically a limitless puzzle. But you send me to a grocery store to pick out an ice cream, a pasta sauce, something where there's a million choices. And I just get paralyzed there. And I could stay there literally for like, 20 minutes just looking at what's going on to the point where like my wife has to come find me in a grocery store and be like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> it's pasta sauce. You didn't conform. And first of all, that's sort of a stigma to your parents is because, you know, you're not, they want to fit in so much. But what advice could you give to parents out there when their children might be different? Because in your case, you talk about using it as a super superpower, things I can do versus can't do. Is that a signal that we should be thinking about in terms of focusing on the positives and the strengths versus undermining confidence with the weaknesses of something? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm a big believer in focusing on the strengths and, and kudos to my parents who quickly realized that what this doctor was telling them was actually hurting their kid. And they, they viewed my ADHD also as a strength and basically said, well, you know what? Certain things he could focus on really well. For example, math. Like I could spend hours doing math, um, math problems. And so in elementary school and middle school, while kids were doing their regular homework, I would be given a separate math book for several grades higher, you know, two, three grades higher up. And I would be doing separate math homework directly with, with the teacher, the things that nobody else was doing. But at the same time, you give me English homework and stuff like that. I was terrible at that stuff. PE, I was great at physical activity. I had a lot of uh, uh, nervous energy. And so I think the best advice there for parents is whenever you are confronted and for individuals as well, whenever you're confronted with something that does seem negative is you try to see the positive, you know, where is the opportunity in that? Uh, and moving away from the things that I'm not good at, <laughs> you know, 
meditation. Don't even get me started on that. As soon as I close my eyes, I feel like I'm bombarded with thoughts. And I've tried it too. I find it's got that monkey brain that has the opposite effect. It seems like you're just giving permission to every thought that's been trying to get into your brain comes racing in at the same time. Yeah, the floodgates have been opened. Um, but again, I, I do think the important lesson is to focus on on the strengths, the opportunities, things that you can do as opposed to things that you can't do. And, you know, one of my favorite stories from this comes from John Wooden, who used to be the coach of UCLA men's basketball team in the 1950s. They won, I believe, 10 or 11 college championships, including seven in a row, which was basically unheard of. And one of the things that John, the coach of UCLA men's basketball team, knew is that you can never have a team where everybody is an all-star. But what he did know is that you were going to have players on the court who have particular strengths. And you might have a player on the court who is able to make a basket from one particular part of the court only. But if you can get him that ball on that spot on the court, he will make the basket. And what he would do is he would create plays so that that player would that one particular strength would end up getting the ball on that spot on the court so that he could make the basket. In other words, he focused on the strengths of his players. He didn't say, oh, Jacob, you suck at free throws, go do a million free throws. He said, you know what? You're really great at, at hitting this three-pointer from the side. So we're going to design plays so that you're going to be put in position to make that shot. And I think that is a very important lesson and something that leaders especially need to do a better job of is focusing on the strengths of their people. My guest today is Jacob Morgan. He's not only a futurist and a best-selling author whose advice is sought by the media and organizations. He's also a wonderful husband, father, and competitive chess player. As I was doing research on this, I realized that you, you know, you and your wife, Blake, are both very successful. You work from home. You've got two kids. You've got two furry baby dogs named Affine and Blinny, I believe. And it all comes together for you. So give us some of your wisdom before we talk a broader the future of work. How do you make your work work within that environment? I mean, I can't imagine it any other way, to be honest. Um, you know, I've been working from home for around 15 years uh, my wife used to work at a Fortune 100 company. She was laid off, I think, six years ago now. And so this is pretty much what I know. Uh, you know, my wife and I love working next to each other. We have a studio at home. We have an office at home. Our dogs are here. You know, we're business partners. We're best friends. We're obviously husband, wife, parents. It's great because my wife and I were both building our own businesses and also a shared business. We have a podcast entrepreneurship that we're trying to create too. For us, it's been very beneficial because we bounce ideas off of each other. If one of us is having a bad day or we don't get a project, the other one is there to lift us up. So it's fun. So let's shift now to really what major corporations and what media is always seeking your opinion on, which is the sense of the future of work. And the first thing I want to talk about is you said that employee experience is ranked as one of the world's top business trends that leaders need to take action on. But for decades, most of the investment in this area has really delivered minimal results. Talk about that, because that's that's a fairly profound statement. Yeah, I mean, the, the concept of employee engagement is not a new one. I think a lot of people are familiar with it. But when you look deeper at what most organizations have been doing is they've really been trying to focus on on perks and benefits, right? Uh, you know, free food, hot yoga, we'll give you a cool looking space, we'll give you, you know, whatever you want, just so you're apparently happy. But by and large, the core workplace practices of the organization have been the same. Uh, the managers have still treated you the same way. Uh, leadership and growth opportunities have still been the same. The coaching and mentoring programs have still been non-existent. The office politics and bureaucracy is still there. But now you just get free food. And that's what a lot of companies have done. And you know what? And to their credit, it has largely worked because there are so many different perks and benefits and things that you can offer that when employees are unhappy, you give them something new, like 
free food, catered lunches every day, and all of a sudden they get a little bit happier. But the problem with that is that it teaches employees just to be with you because of things that they get, not because of any value that's exchanged. Uh, there's minimal loyalty because when another company comes around that gives them more than what you offer, they will quickly jump ship. The shift to experience is really not so much focusing just on the perks and benefits, but changing the core workplace practices around your company, focusing on things like health and wellness, focusing on things like corporate culture, uh, like leaders who are coaches and mentors and practice emotional intelligence, looking at a sense of purpose and meaning and impact and how those things contribute to your role and how you feel, your career trajectory and growth opportunities and helping you not just become a better employee, but a better human being. That's what employee experience is about. And it's about three environments that organizations can shape, which are culture, technology, and space. The tools employees have access to to do their jobs, the spaces in which they work, and how employees actually feel getting those jobs done. And it's largely why I think we've been talking so much about the great resignation. But in all honesty, the great resignation is actually the great opportunity. Uh, the great resignation is happening because now, finally, employees have enough power, they have enough voice. We don't want to be part of an organization that says it's great. We want to be a part of an organization that is great. It's very easy on a company's about page to say all the wonderful things that the organization offers. It's much harder to actually live what the organization says. It's kind of like online dating, right? It's, it's easy to have a profile where you make yourself look amazing and sound great. It's much harder to actually be the person you say you are. It's Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters. Download this episode wherever you get your podcasts or visit me at chatterthatmatters.ca. When we come back, Jacob will share his thoughts on the future of work and your future. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. I think this is the challenge that organizations are struggling with now. They're having to become the companies they say they are. And so really the great resignation is about employees saying, look, we want more, uh, not just in terms of pay or benefits, but we want to be seen as human beings. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest, Jacob Morgan, one of the top influencers in the world. He's a futurist and a best-selling author, and we're talking about the future of your work. So what do you advise companies to not only do what they say, but say what they mean? How do they follow this course? Because a lot of this is intangible. You know, if I say someone is great, there's certain metrics to it, but there's also this sense of they really do care about me. It's very heart driven. What can companies do to sort of not only send that signal, but to deliver on it? There, there are a couple of things. I mean, in my book on employee experience, I talk about the three environments that companies can control, which I mentioned are culture, technology, and space. Um, and underneath each one of those, there are several different elements. But I'd say the first thing that an organization can do is to look at those three environments and ask, how is the organization's technology helping contribute to a better employee experience? How are the spaces in which the organization is designing contributing to that better experience? What about the corporate culture? What is that actually like working at this organization? And how do employees feel working here? I mean, it simply starts by creating a dialogue 
between the organization and the people. And I'm not just talking about surveys and, you know, score this on a scale of one to five, you know, do you agree, not agree? I'm talking about leaders who are actually having conversations with their people and getting an honest sense of how they feel and what they're doing. It also means that you put people first. Putting people first means that you're open with them, you're transparent with them. If times are tough, you try to look at all other options before you cut your people. You don't cut your people first. Uh, Hubert Jolie, the former CEO of Best Buy, when he took over Best Buy, the company, everybody said it was going to go bankrupt and he was nuts for trying to take on this role. And the first thing he said, uh, everybody said he should do is cut his workforce. But instead, he looked for every other opportunity where he could cut. Uh, inventory, excess supply, he looked for different inefficiencies within the company. And then what he did is he actually invested more in his people, not less. He didn't cut his people, he gave them more resources, invested in training and learning and growth and helping them do a better job of um, assisting customers and identifying opportunities. And the company radically transformed. So putting people first is really at the heart and center of what this is all about. I don't think that's a hard thing, a hard thing to do. I think it's just something that requires commitment. And I think it's something that requires courageous leaders because oftentimes putting people first requires investment. And that investment might mean that in the short term, your dollars and cents, your numbers might not be as amazing as they otherwise could. I mean, I, look, I run a small business of 10 people too, 11 people. I could very easily cut lots of things for my team and then say, hey, look how much more profitable my business is. It's an artificial profit because I cut things. I took things away from people to allow them to do their jobs so that my business is apparently more profitable. What's far more scalable and practical is to say, I'm going to give my employees, my team members more resources so that we can continue to grow and scale. And that's what the smart organizations out there understand. Jacob, I want to ask you a couple of tough questions. The first one is to deal with diversity. We all know it and embracing it, but like in game of chess, sometimes you have to sacrifice one to get the other. What's your advice to corporations that are trying to create a much better balanced culture, bring more people in, more diversity, more diversity of thought, ethnicity, knowing that by doing so, some of the people that might have been there or are in line for a job might have to be sacrificed? Um, I guess it depends why they need to be sacrificed. If it's because they don't believe in diversity inclusion, it's because they believe in the status quo, it's because they believe in command and control and doing things the old way, that to me is not a sacrifice. That to me is actually a benefit. Why do you want those types of people at your company? Why do you want a toxic environment? Why do you want somebody there who doesn't believe that they should surround themselves by people who are not like them? So when I think about diversity and inclusion, I find it hard to imagine that it's actually a sacrifice that we're having to make. Because what it's going to do is it's just going to help you filter to make sure that you have the right people in place. Let me frame that question again, because I agree with you. Absolutely. But I'm thinking more of the individual. Let's say young Jacob had decided to stay at that company. You were climbing the corporate ladder and you were the next candidate, the obvious candidate for a job, but you didn't fit what they needed to do to correct what was the wrongs of decades, which was they were too male-oriented. They were too white male-oriented. How do you come to terms with that? Because as we change for the good, we also realize that along the way, some individuals might get caught in that crossfire. Yeah, that's tough. Um, that is a tough situation to be put in. But leaders who are, as I like to call them, future-ready leaders will understand. For example, if I'm up for a promotion 
and somebody candidly comes to me and says, look, Jacob, you're really great at your job. We want you to be part of this company. We know that you were looking that you were in, in line for this promotion and that, you know, you had very high hopes of getting it. But we started to look at our executive team and we realized that our executive team is a bunch of people just like you. They're a bunch of people in their late thirties who are male, who are white, that come from the same place and have the same background. As an organization, if we want to evolve, we realize that we need to make change. And so instead, we're going to hire somebody else from a diverse background. If that to me is communicated in a way and explained in a way of like, look, you didn't get the job because we want people with diverse backgrounds and experience and ideas, but we do see an opportunity for you here. Something so that the employees don't feel like they are left out and simply just cut because of you know whatever reason. I think communicating things in a way like that is effective. But at the same time, I think a lot of leaders out there who are in their 30s or 40s or 50s who are white or who are, it doesn't even matter if they're white or not, who are considered getting promoted when everybody else on the executive team looks like them should know, um, especially if they're a future ready leader that, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a diverse team. And I'm okay with that because I understand that what we need for the organization, what we need for success and growth is you know, how come we don't have any women on the executive team? Let's promote some some women on the executive team. Like as a leader, you should not just be okay with that, but encourage that to to stand up for that, to to want something like that to happen. And that is if you truly believe in these concepts and ideas, if you truly believe in helping make other people succeed. But if you're purely in it for self-interest, it's going to be a very, very hard time um, to acknowledge and respect why that makes sense. And I get it, it's hard because ego is involved. And the more senior you become in a company, the more ego you get. But as we know now, it's not just about how good you are at the job that matters. I mean, you need to do lots of other things. And so I think we need to be more accepting as leaders. Diversity is important and inclusion is important. And I think the organization as a whole needs to do a better job of letting people know that there are other opportunities and that you are not forgotten and that the organization is in the process of coming up with a plan for you and that you're not just kind of being kicked to the curb. Uh, but I think there is a tactful and a tasteful and respectful way to make everybody understand and uh, be happy with, with any decision that's made. For a lot of organizations as well, it's it's not as if like, it's America's Got Talent and everybody's on a stage and somebody's saying, oh, Jacob, congratulations. Like you got promoted. Tony, sorry, you didn't because you're a white male. Like it's not like a, a an instant sudden thing. But, you know, what the organization needs to do in advance is to say, look, we are committed to diversity and inclusion. From here on out, going forward across the organization, here is what we're going to be looking for for our executives team, uh, our executive team. Right now, we have 50 executives. Uh, they're all male. We are committing to, I don't know, 30% female executives. We want 28% uh, of our executive team to be diverse. Like If you communicate these things in advance, then when opportunities do come up, you as a potential candidate or prospect will know what the organization is thinking and why they're thinking a certain way. It's not as if, I mean, these things shouldn't come as sudden blows, like out of nowhere, like, oh my God. All of a sudden you care about diversity, like that should never happen. Uh, so I think the communication piece on behalf of the organization and the executive team around why the organization is thinking differently, 
what the benefit is, what this means. I think that's a very important step to have. The world of work is constantly changing and a lot of skills and mindsets that people think are crucial for future employees and future leaders are actually becoming relevant and essential now. To stay relevant, employees, organizations, and leaders need to understand how the world of work is changing, what the future employee looks like, and the future is now. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest, Jacob Morgan, one of the top influencers in the world. He's a futurist and a best-selling author, and we're talking about the future of your work. You know, we talk about and embrace and celebrate the fact that employees have a, a sense of new power, that they can look at for purpose over profit, that they can look at, am I valued? Do I feel like I'm a human being? But just around the corner, as the marketplace and economy gets populated by AI and machine learning, and we're going to be competing and sometimes going home saying, I lost my job to a machine. So ideally, organizations who invest in AI will not be doing it to get rid of people, but they will be, they will be doing it in a way to upskill their people, to have them focus more on the human aspects of work. Uh, I talked to McDonald's, I think it was two years ago, it was their former, former chief people officer. If you go into their, their stores now, a lot of people, you notice kiosks where you just order from a kiosk instead of going to the front desk. And uh, when I interviewed the executives at McDonald's, I said, you know, a lot of people are concerned. You're one of the world's largest employers and people are saying you're just going to be getting rid of people and using bots. And they said, well, actually, that's not true because in a lot of cases, we've not only kept the headcount the same at our stores, we've actually increased it. And instead, what we're doing is we're having our employees focus more on customer experience, bringing you your food, asking you how you're doing, seeing what else they can get you, checking in on you. Uh, the second piece of the puzzle, though, for employees is that you still need to become a perpetual learner. In other words, you can no longer rely on your organizations or in educational institutions to teach you everything you need to know to be successful. The good news is you have access to an unlimited amount of resources at your disposal. You could learn anything that you want, either for free or very low cost through something like YouTube or Coursera or Khan Academy or Udemy. I mean, there's millions of platforms, well, maybe not millions, but there's many platforms out there where you can learn anything that you want. Bringing this all together from, as you said, how you struggled early on school, university, companies, do you think that we're looking at a major reset in terms of how we prepare the next generation to have this lifelong passion for learning, have this sense of who they are, building their emotional intelligence. Is that, should that not be the priority of what we're doing when we're investing in their education? I hope so. I, I know some educational institutions, and I've had a few on my podcast over the years, say that they're doing a better job of doing that, focusing more on actually getting, you know, doing work as opposed to studying to do work. Parents need to step up. We as individuals need to step up. But the point is that even if things don't change, it doesn't mean that we can't change. You know, if you wait for other people to change for you, and if you wait for other people to give you the resources, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you got you to gotta take care of yourself. And that's, I think, the most important thing for all of us to remember. Jacob, I always end with the three things that I've learned today. And the first one I've loved is this focus on strengths versus weaknesses. And I love the story about you shooting uh, basketballs from the sidelines and setting you up for success because that's what you were good with. I appreciate your whole focus on people and profit, and they have to work in unison. 
versus people being a way to make more profit. And I think that the, the sense of valuing the human being is something that has to resonate not only with the leaders in organizations, but I think with your peers as well, that we bring value to the table. The final thing that dropped the mic to me is what you just said when you said that, you know, if we wait for uh, other people to change, uh, we could be waiting a long time. It's us making the change that makes the difference. Jacob Morgan, how can we get hold of you? What's the best way for my listeners to uh, find out more about you? So my email, if anybody wants to reach out to me, is jacob at thefutureorganization.com. Uh, my website is thefutureorganization.com as well. And on there, you can find links to uh, my podcast and all sorts of fun stuff. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Alan Richardson. He's the VP of Learning and Performance at RBC. His role is to lead the Enterprise Learning and Development Group, which designs and delivers uh, innovative learning solutions for employees right across RBC. Alan, welcome. Thank you very much, Tony. Great to be here. You've had quite a year or two with RBC being acknowledged as one of the best places to work, both in Canada and around the world. What are some of the top awards? Yeah, it's uh, been fantastic. We've both won awards for being the top place to work uh, overall, but also for youth, which is very important to us with our uh, investment in youth through Future Launch. We've also been recognized as a great place to work from a diverse standpoint as well. How does a bank the size of RBC, I think you're one of the largest, not the largest employers in Canada manage to create that type of culture? We keep a focus on culture. We created what we call our collective ambition, which is centered around our purpose to help clients thrive and communities prosper. And then those values, uh, you know, about being inclusive, about having integrity, the vision of putting our clients first, those are the things that you can all rally around and you can hire people and grow people who see commonly who have a sense of alignment around why we're here. How important is it for an individual nowadays to stay in step with the changes in the world, to think about their career and think about who they are and who they want to work for based on those three tenets? The first one you talked about was values. Probably the most important thing is that you're looking for a company that aligns with your own. So that means knowing what your own values are. And in this world, I think personal values of growth so knowing that the world is changing means that I must change with it. I must grow and, and continue to strive to do more, to do better, to build skills over time. A value around autonomy and self-determination and empowerment. Great companies and great cultures value are the ability of their employees to make decisions on their own. Looking to, to be empowered and to take uh, sort of action is really important especially if you're going to stay ahead. I also think that it's about that sense of, I mentioned inclusion and integrity, right? We live in a world where groups are still excluded for many different reasons and ensuring that you're at a company that believes that everybody matters, that everybody has a voice and has a way to contribute, I think is absolutely essential. For RBC, those values center around accountability and teamwork, as I mentioned, integrity and inclusion, uh, and then around how we think about where the client is at and, and how do we put our client and our shareholders and our other stakeholders first. Can you have this kind of culture, which is very heart driven, it's about being collaborative, helping others get to where they want to go. Does that still work when people are together and apart? You know, it's almost easier to be either or. So it's easier to be in person or it's easier to be fully remote. I think hybrid is an interesting one because you are at risk 
of excluding people depending on the setting that you take, right? You know, a role that you need to think about technology playing, how do we invest in the right uh, sort of room setup and technology to, to support a hybrid world? You need leaders who are being very thoughtful about what is the best way for me to create an inclusive experience for everybody that can be a part of it. Is it fair to say that as people look towards the future of their work, the middle ground's disappearing. There's going to be people that embrace these changes and have opportunities like they've never seen before because they can set things up to what they're after. They can go after things they want. And yet the other people that don't jump in might be in danger of falling behind because of the, the circumstances of a, a world where things are just going to move very quickly and very dynamically. It, and it both at a, at a company level and at an individual level. I think companies that aren't jumping on this opportunity are at risk of, of being left behind because I do believe that companies that get hybrid right will unlock another level of productivity and innovation because I do think that hybrid actually offers a lot of benefits there. Individually, your ability for your skills to be recognized and to find careers that are exciting in a geographic sense have expanded a ton in this new world because suddenly you don't need to be on location uh, to be part of a, a team. Alan Richardson, VP of Learning and Performances. Uh, I love your passion and I love your insights. Will you join me again on another uh, episode in the future? Sounds great. Looking forward to it, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.